Was it good for you? Yeah, it's always good for me, baby. Great. (laughs) (laughs) What? What? Sorry. Welcome to... (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. I'm Abby. And this week's movie is Gravity. (laughs) Everything's fine. Everything's totally fine. (laughs) Nothing happened. (laughs) All right. So, (laughs) Frida. Ooh, are you drinking wine? Hi. Yeah, sorry. I forgot to tell you. I've got wine. I'm always so jealous. Oh, that the the way the light hit that glass there. Oh, <laughs> wine. <laughs> Here with my water. Happy Sunday. <laughs> um, Frida, how are you? I'm really good. Cool. <laughs> I mean, I feel like yeah. You asked me that, but you said like you were about to say something, so. Oh, sorry. Just about to no, say. I was like, do you have anything that you would like to say before um, before we start? Yes, I have two bits of news. One is cool. that I decided to pick up. I'm just going to turn the volume down a bit so I can't. Um, I decided to pick up Isaac Asimov book Ooh. just because I was like, let me see what this science fiction stuff is all about. <gasps> So I went to a used bookstore and I bought a short book of short stories. And I, I was like, look, let me give us a go. Cool. That's I mean, that's my news. That is my news. I just wanted to report in. I'll let you know how I'm going. Oh, okay, cool. And um, my other bit of news is that, like, I think I'm starting to resolve <laughs> my feelings about outer space. <gasps> I think I'm settling on what's my issues with that. Oh, okay. This movie, because like last night or two nights ago when I was doing research for this movie, I ended up watching like live coverage of the like Challenger explosion. No. That's what it brought me to. And then I realized this stuff really terrifies me. And... (laughs) Like, I just find it all very upsetting, space, and all these t- terrible things that have happened. <laughs> I don't know. And so I was like, geez, I feel kind of low. I just want to get that out of the way before okay. we start recording. Great. But I'm like, I think space, <laughs> I think space makes me feel kind of sad and scared. Okay. Um, okay. So if this is good, we'll, we'll work through these issues. Thank you. As we work I, through these I need these to work movies. through my space issues. Okay. I think we should do that. I think we should bring you through to a point in the future hopefully where you're like fucking space is amazing i love this i don't know if we'll ever get there but we can definitely try to work through it because you think space travel is amazing and i've always been like i don't know i don't know and then i'm like i think i know why (gasps) okay because i'm scared look the first step is identifying the issue thank you and now we can work on it thank you (laughs) okay 
Perfect. Yeah. How are you going? I have one thing that I need to say. Uh, this is the last movie in our cycle. And the release date for this movie. Frida. Happy anniversary! One year? One year. Ah. Oh. One whole year together. Releasing, releasing episodes, mini-sodes. I oh feel like gosh. we should do a little callback on it all, but I didn't prepare anything. I just wrote down happy anniversary, so... <laughs> a tri- like a tribute video with um yeah. the adagio music from sunshine in the background oh yeah i sent you an anniversary present oh i wanted you to have it for the, yeah i wanted you to have it for the recording but i didn't send it in time because you know i just didn't yeah <laughs> so i apologize but it will arrive at some point so that's what that's about happy anniversary mm-hmm. happy anniversary i just want to give everyone a warning that I'm very, very congested today. <laughs> I'm trying my best to breathe, but it's hard. And I apologize in advance for any awful sounds that might come across. Oh my God. It's really, I'm struggling. I love, I love, I love how, yeah, I love how I'm there trying to like give us a fucking anniversary celebration moment. And <laughs> Frida's just leaning away from the mic trying to breathe. It's obviously all she can think about right now. It's all I can think about. <laughs> well then, well then we'll swiftly move into this movie all about space that Frida's obviously very excited about. Just... Okay, let's start I've Frida's space therapy. <laughs> okay. We'll start with a summary. Very brief summary, because we're going to go through the events of the movie, so um, I have only written a paragraph. Space. The final (laughs) frontier. These are the voyages. (laughs) No, I'm joking, sorry. Okay. Space. High above the earth. There is nothing to carry sound. No air pressure. No oxygen. Nobody to help when gravity takes hold. Nobody to help when it doesn't. Dr. Ryan Stone on her first mission and Lieutenant Commander Kowalski on his last are hit by space debris undergoing a cascade event. Set adrift in orbit, they are in a race to stay alive and find a way back to Earth, preferably in a radiation shielded capsule of some sort. This is the movie that lays out every astronaut's nightmare while also showing us earthbound mortals a tiny glimpse of what it feels like. A chance to float among the stars and look down on our one in a billion home and take a moment, just one moment to think, damn, we're really fucking this up. (laughs) Word. (laughs) So Frida, general feeling about gravity. Uh, it's, I think it's a, it's an amazing experience watching it. Yes. It's an experience and it, it, it washes over you and it has a, a pretty strong emotional message as at its heart, complemented by this incredible soundscape and visuals. Mm. And then, you know, you we're breaking it down, but at the first thing it's important to say, like, before we break it down, the movie just, like, kind of washes over you in yeah. a way that it's like you don't need to process it actively. It just sort of happens to you. That's a beautiful way to put it. 
so it's special mm. that's true because i think i think saying it's an experience is pretty much the only way to describe it isn't it it's it, it just is an experience i really love this movie i love its simplicity i mean it's complicated but it's simple you know it's it's not uh, overly I agree. involved it's quite like when we did um moon you know, I just think it's really impressive when an actor can hold a movie like that and hold you within that moment with them. Um, She is the only human actor in it. And this is the first time that I've actually felt what the meaning of these words, but the debris is a character. Yeah. The, the ISS is a character. The music is a character. She's not really alone because, yes, there aren't any actors, but there's so much character in the things that surround her that I don't think it really feels like it's just her plugging away at the film by herself. Right. And for me, I potentially would say that the main protagonist in this movie is a gravity herself. Oh, Okay, cool. Well, I just want to talk about the logic of this for a moment because Mm -hmm. even Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted at the time of the movie being released that the movie should be renamed Zero Gravity. And I would like to disagree with Mr. NDT if that's okay. It's fine by me. (laughs) Please don't hate me. (laughs) I love you. Everything's fine. (laughs) He's not an artist, you know. This is a film. Um, Okay, well, the thing is, we have a tendency to use the term zero gravity a lot, but truthfully, there really isn't any such thing as zero gravity. Gravity is the attractive pull all objects have. It's the closer you are to an object, the more you'll feel its gravitational force, and the larger the object is, the more effect that force will have on you. And this is like why we can stand on the earth. It's why we fall from a height. And while the gravitational pull gets weaker and weaker as we move away from the Earth, does that mean that you're eventually in a region of zero gravity? Like, no. Because our Earth, along with every other object in the solar system, are in the gravitational field of the Sun. So what if we leave our solar system? But every object in every like object and system in our galaxy are in the gravitational field of the big ass black hole at the centre of the Milky Way. Yeah. So, you can't escape gravity. (laughs) Now, when Alfonso Cuaron proposed doing this movie, he told the director of photography, Emmanuel Lebeski, that it was just a small movie. Only two characters. We'll have it done in a year. It took them four and a half years to make the movie because making a movie set in space is not easy, as we have learned before. And what's funny is Quran has said that he is done with space, which reminds me of when we did Sunshine and Danny Boyle was talking about how he he said in some interview that like a director only goes into space once. So between planning, animating, creating new technology and applying the next level visual effects, the work that went into this movie is astounding. And for mm. me, I feel like it was totally worth it. And I think you absolutely agree. So were there any particular scenes and shots and things that really resonated with you? Um, I mean, apart from the 90 minute thing, 
Um, apart from the fact that the the whole drama around just trying to hold on to bars was just so compelling. Um, this is something I, about the movie which I absolutely loved, but um, it ties into there's a lot of like symbolism throughout the film, right? There's clear scenes, like when she arrives in the ISS and she forms this fetal position, mm. sort of being nurtured by the womb, the warm womb of the ISS and the oxygen. And she even has an umbilical cord coming from her middle. I mean, yeah. it's so powerful. And this sort of birth, and there's a few little bits like that. But even better than that is that when she's right at the end, where she's crashed and she's down in the water, right? And she has to pull herself out of the water and kind of rise from the water like an amphibious creature and take the first step. She's pulling herself up like you imagine a primordial man took their first steps. You know, it's like came out of the water and this like evolution and rebirth and this powerful thing. But just as she's sinking, I don't know if you noticed, but a little frog swims up. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't know. A frog swims up right in the middle of the shot and it's like the, um, that's an amphibious creature that came out of the water mm. onto land just like and then when she sheds herself she sheds the spacesuit and she comes up like the way the mm. frog pushes its way up and comes out of the water and mm. I just thought like that symbolism and what it might represent we could talk about in a bit but like it's it was just so beautiful beautiful it's really lovely and it's so interesting because I've read a bunch of stuff where like people question the ending like oh what does the ending mean and you know a lot of people saying that they believe that she died in the capsule um, when she turned the oxygen off and that it, the rest of it is just kind of like a hallucination through to her death but Alfonso Coran was actually asked about about that and he was just like it's rebirth. He was like, it couldn't be clearer. He was like, that's what the intention is. It is about a story of rebirth. And, and that's what the ending clearer. is. So that seems to be kind of like a central concept in the theme of the movie. Is that is that what you really felt that the theme of the movie was? Centred around rebirth? Or did you feel there was a bit more to it? I think that birth is a big symbol. And then evolution... Uh, letting uh, is a big symbol obviously like he's clearly um he's clearly pushing this idea of evolving letting go is a big theme obviously um and so you know when we know things about her character and what's happened to her character it sort of made me reflect on what the movie was actually about and why rebirth is relevant rebirth after what rebirth from what and what I realized the movie is about is that uh it's about life after loss and in my opinion is that he kind of worked backwards he said all right people die or you lose somebody where do you go after and how can I portray that visually right that's what I think because we know that's about her character is that she suffered a a crippling loss and she's drifting right Mm. and so where does he decide to put this character to symbolize what she's dealing with after the loss of her daughter space what could be a bigger symbol for drifting endlessly? The threat of I will drift forever and ever and nothing will ever tether me um, back to the world again than literally putting her in space. So in my view, he's sort of working backwards. He's trying to explain visually, communicate 
what is the experience after dealing with loss and what is it that needs to happen to heal from loss and what she does the character does throughout the whole movie and I want to get into details like little bits later just to make my point is she slowly embraces life again and she slowly says Mm. there's life after death I can get out of this horrible thing and be reborn, a new version of myself. I haven't forgot about my daughter, but she's part of me now. I've integrated my daughter into who I am and I'm ready to go forward and live my life anew, afresh with this new perspective on how beautiful is life, how beautiful is earth, how grateful I am to be alive and how grateful I am to be able to grasp the things that earth gives us to nurture us. That's what I felt was the ending of the film and the meaning of the film. She steps up through the mud, she squelches, she feels the mud of the earth and she feels embraced and nurtured by the earth. That's what I feel is the message of the film. Do you know what, what's quite, what I think is quite beautiful about a movie like this is that you can have somebody like you who has a real genuine connection to film and understanding um, stories and, and people and, and what is happening. Because, I mean, we, you know, we've talked about it and, and you've mentioned it earlier a little bit with like, you're not a massive sci-fi person and you don't particularly enjoy space movies. But the fact that you can come and watch this movie and take all of that context about the actual character and what is happening and and feel that story and feel all of that and I also like that somebody like me who doesn't pick up on all of this stuff can come along and just watch a really incredible space movie and be a sci-fi nerd about it and just be like, ah, oh, look, that's cool. And that's this and that's that. I love that it doesn't have to be like you don't have to see each aspect to enjoy it. You know, you could be that yeah. lucky person in the middle who sees all of it and really gets it. Or you can be that person who like, ha- who really kind of takes that side, takes the sci-fi side or takes the, uh, the story side of it and really kind of runs with that and still has that experience. And to me, that makes it an incredible movie. I, I agree. A good artist will try to portray, you know, various things at once or try to give visual satisfaction and emotional satisfaction. And it can be appreciated from all those angles. And I agree that that's why it's such a good film. So in saying that, we should get a bit more into uh, what, what we're here for, because there is a lot to unpack in this movie. Um, and I would like to start, as always, with our tropes. Freda, what was your trope this week? Hmm. Uh, my trope is... Um, I have to. The only way for me is to cut this rope. <laughs> or otherwise known as, he's going to sacrifice himself. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> not me, not Almighty, you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. You have to. I can't go on. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, and I'll expand on this later, but, um, it cracked me up a lot. And after I watched it and I was like giggling to myself about, um, other movies where, you know, it's like, no, you can't, I must, the only way is to cut this rope, but I was going climbing 
as I've started doing and my yeah. climbing partner and I were giggling and so you get to the top of the rope and you, you go signal you know take you know take me down and she's like I can't the only way for you to come down is for me to cut this rope <laughs> no <laughs> very nice that's right yeah. yeah I don't have any comments on it it's just yeah it just made me it made me chuckle I know because I know we're going to talk about it more later so I'm trying to not say anything yeah don't it. say anything but yeah I get um, that like you know, oh no he must sacrifice himself for, for sacrifice her to go on <laughs> like oh come on <laughs> go on go on you'll go on you're gonna live a full life yeah <laughs> I'll never let go with Jack etc um what's your trope um, <laughs> mine is oh, it's something that really bugs me in movies super speedy spacesuits <laughs> like why are they able to get in and out of their spacesuits so easily and so quickly <laughs> again we're gonna talk about it in a while but her timer is flashing seven minutes to get out of there and in that time she bounces around in the parachute lines a couple of times gets into her spacesuit, gets outside, frees the capsule, and then the stuff hits all within seven minutes. Like, I just, can we just have some realistic fucking countdowns, please? <laughs> I have so much to say on like little bits and pieces yeah. of like stuff that I, again, I'm going to shut my mouth. Yeah, okay. I'm with you. All right. I'm with okay. you, babe. <laughs> okay. We're going to get serious. Let's get serious. <laughs> Let's get Right, let's start with our scientists. Science. Scientists. Yeah, yeah. Astronauts. Present. <laughs> I'm here. Okay, so categories of astronauts. Right, I wanted to look at this because I was very curious. If they, were, they were very particular to define their roles in to a certain degree within the movie. So then it just made me think, I was like, well, right, we've talked about astronauts before, but, and we've done a little bit on astronaut training, but like, what are the different types of astronauts are there? And in my mind, I think I was always just like, they're all astronauts, they're all the one thing. They're not. So we actually have four different kinds. You've got the NASA classics. These are the astronauts that are recruited by NASA. They undergo years of training, rigorous training, before they're selected for a mission. And then they have like further, I don't even know, a year to two years of mission specific training. These astronauts are pilot astronauts. They're the mission commanders who pilot the spacecraft and they will likely have had a background in the Air Force and have logged significant flight hours well before being recruited by NASA. Uh, the second type is mission specialists. These are the mm -hmm. ones who work with the pilot to achieve the purpose of the mission and they can be engineers, scientists or physicians. Then you have the astronauts that fall outside of the standard NASA recruiting procedures. You've got international, ast international astronauts. And these are from four agencies that have an agreement with NASA. So they're international. They're referred to as mission specialists. And they will still have done some training at the Johnson Space Center. And they come from the European Space Agency, the Japanese Space Agency, the Brazilian Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency. Lastly, you have... The payload specialists. Now these guys are scientists and they're there only because of the payload. 
So they work for the company or the university that would own the payload. Ding, ding, ding. We've talked about payloads in Geostorm. Ah, Um, But NASA has to approve their appointment. And historically, they don't need to go through the same training program as a NASA mission specialist. So saying that, let's talk about Dr. Ryan Stone, who is a medical engineer on her first mission with NASA as a mission specialist. What did you think of Dr. Ryan Stone? Given what you said, is she actually a payload specialist? This is exactly what I was, I was like, this is the thing. Because I don't want to take anything away from, like, from Sandy B's, like, performance. She was incredible. It was beautifully done. But the character of Ryan Stone, as written, is not an astronaut. Like, how could you possibly go through the training that these astronauts have to go through and react the way that she does up there? Ah, It's not ah, a good depiction. ah, it is such a poor depiction of a real life mission specialist. And you see astronauts talking about this in like a lot of articles. Chris Hadfield has a lot to say about it in a YouTube video. But like she says, she's only had six months training. She doesn't appear to know anything about her crewmates or have any connection with them. She's there for that one specific module to be installed. And she has no real concept of how to react in an emergency. So like that's what I was like. I was like, she has to be a payload specialist. Like, to call her a mission specialist just seems like it's really kind of... Mm. They're doing the dirty on the astronauts. But but a payload specialist wouldn't be out there walking around. No. Yeah, Yeah, that's true. They don't do spacewalks. Uh, This is a problem that exists in terms of astronauts. Like, it's a concern back in the 80s where astronauts would train together for years and then a payload specialist would come along and they wouldn't know how that person was going to react. And they didn't know if they could trust them in an emergency. And obviously you don't want that kind of a vibe on a space mission. I do find that interesting. Like when people come on as scientists, like, you know, yeah, like they wouldn't all be spacewalking together. I am sure you'd only be spacewalking with people that you are completely confident. For example, when he says, they say abort and she doesn't abort. That to me is like, (gasps) that made me really upset because Mm. yeah, that's like in the military if they, they, and you don't, listen to orders like who doesn't listen to orders in the military so i just imagine that you'd spacewalk with only people that you felt pretty confident that you could rely on them uh when there was emergency which there was and she doesn't abort i mean hello yeah that was such a big thing there's a youtube video with uh nicole stott who is doing some commentary on some um, space movies and yeah that's one of the main things that she kind of highlights she's like no (laughs) your commander says abort you abort Uh, funnily enough, then there's also a quote from Henry Hartsfield, who is a, a real life Hall of Fame pilot and astronaut. And he was saying a thing before about payload specialists, just basically saying, if you had a problem in orbit, are you going to have to babysit this person? Which, of course, is exactly what Lieutenant Commander Kowalski had to do. So speaking of, how do we feel about our space cowboy? It's funny, my opinion of him changed as I thought more about it, because first I was like, he really annoyed me, his nonchalant nature, and he's just, Mm. and also I was like, why does he have to be in space because he loves it, but she has to be in space because she's escaping? But the more I formed my perspective (laughs) on the movie, um, the more I realized he's just not an important character in terms of the story of, like, the, the message of the film. So he's just, you know, he, he doesn't, he's very light. And he, he adds a bit of lightness to the film, which I think is a good thing. 
um, the, the film is about mm. her. It's not about him. So I wasn't, I, I sort of was like, you know what? It's all good. Like he is, he's, he adds a little bit of lightness and it's, it's nice to have him yeah. around, like from a viewer point of view. That's, that's what I thought. Yeah, I agree. I think the point of it all really was to show her story and her growth. And as you said, like her kind of evolution. So you have to have her at the beginning like while I've kind of said it's not believable that that's how a mission specialist would behave, but for the story, that's that's exactly what you had to have happening. Yeah. So you had to have somebody there who was calming her, guiding her, and kind of setting her on her path so that she could then go it alone, kind of thing. And she she needed yeah. he was just there to be that person to just direct her in the right way at the beginning, and mm. guide her to the to the to her freedom. He had to deliver the line: "Let go, let go, let go." Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there is one more person that I would like to talk about. And it's not a character, but it is the actual science consultant on the movie. Because, yes, there was Who one. Who that? Who that? That be Dr. Kevin Grazier. I'm going to say that that's how you pronounce it. Uh, he is a planetary physicist who is an expert in computational orbital dynamics the study of how objects in orbit interrelate. He performs large-scale, long-term simulations of early solar system evolution, dynamics, and, Frida, chaos. Hell yeah. <laughs> he was the science planning engineer for the Cassini-Huygens mission to Saturn and Titan, as well as an investigation scientist. Wow. I mention this because, well, props to a real-life scientist... But also because I just like bringing it up when they consult an actual expert about the actual science that they decide to put in the film. And go on. Oh, I uh, agree. Yeah. Like he actually would have calculated, <laughs> I guess, the 90 minute thing and all that, I'm assuming. Mm. Well, one. Yeah, this is one of the other reasons I bring it up because I had a big rant about this this morning. One of the biggest criticisms that you will see when you look into the science of this movie is all about the inaccuracies in the orbits of Hubble, the ISS and Tiangong. So the thing is, you can read 25 million articles out there. I might be exaggerating. All about this. So if you want to know about what the correct and accurate angle and um, height of orbits are for these objects in space go and read any article on what the science of gravity well like what gravity got right and wrong about science but I don't want to go into those numbers and orbits and angles and all of this because is this a scientific mistake due to lack of research and consideration or is it just a calculated decision that actually has a nice freaking story to mm -hmm. it I get really ranty about all of these repetitive articles they've all locked onto this one story that one person said oh well this is inaccurate and then every other article just regurgitates it and i managed to then find one which is an interview with alfonso coran where he talks about how he loves science and technology in space and he's like i could have used made-up space stations and telescopes i could have like invented false technology but why would i do that when we have the most amazing real life technology orbiting our planet yeah and he really 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 wanted to showcase these absolute feats of engineering on the screen so he didn't want to make up a space station he was like we have one i want to show the real one and what's interesting 
is they did write a first draft of the script that had the Hubble, the ISS, and Tiangong in their real angles and orbital heights. But, he said, that script was just this huge massive tome of complicated explanations trying to explain how all this was happening. And in the end, for the sake of storytelling, he just wanted to simplify it. And the best way to simplify it was to just have these three objects be in the same orbit. So yes, it's inaccurate. No, we don't need to talk about it. It's not a fucking documentary. Are you really mad about it? Are you mad about it? No, I agree. I echo it's not a documentary. Like, I hope if anyone's gotten this far, you would have heard my breakdown of what the movie is about. And honestly, that should put away all your worries and fears about it not being perfect because that isn't why we watch a feature film. That's why you watch a documentary. Exactly. But you know what? Even documentaries are edited to have an emotional message too. It's art, yeah. motherfucker. <laughs> oh my God. T-shirt. That's great. Yeah. Let's get into some of the science itself. <laughs> All right. Let's start with space as an environment. Space, the final frontier. I can't, every single time, it's just, it plays in my brain. I just feel it vibrating through my brain. Um, okay, space begins 80 kilometers above the Earth's surface. It is a region where there are so few molecules that it is a near-perfect vacuum. And as laid out in the opening titles, this lends to a few characteristics. There is nothing to carry sound. Space has no air, and sound is vibrations in air travelling between us. So, if there is no air, no sound can be carried. However, sound is also carried through solids. So some sound can be heard through contact vibrations, but it's very unlikely that anything would really travel through all the layers of a spacesuit. Now, the second thing is there is no air pressure in space. Our atmosphere is pretty weighty, and that exerts a force on our bodies, the atmospheric air pressure. But it doesn't crush us, and it doesn't crush us because our bodies also have an internal pressure that pushes outwards with an equal force. Mm -hmm. So while we're on the ground, these pressures are balanced and we're okay. But as you go up above the atmosphere, the air pressure pushing on you is decreasing while the internal pressure stays the same. So if you don't have a pressurized suit, the only way for the gases to equalize is for the ones on the inside to come to the outside. Classic Total Recall reference. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I see you. <laughs> I, it's in my brain. All I can see is the eyes popping. Yeah, because you actually explained this really nicely with that one. So. <laughs> um, then we have the temperature. 258 to minus 148 Fahrenheit. That's how you know it's an American movie. <laughs> so for the rest of us humans, that would be 125 degrees Celsius to minus 100 degrees Celsius. Or if you really want to be a purist, 399 to minus 173 Kelvin. I'm just, I just assume in space, like everyone uses the same standard international units. You reckon? I would assume that too. Yeah. How do you look into it? And I'm, I was, I was surprised that they put Fahrenheit in the title at the beginning. 
Yeah. Like, I was genuinely surprised. And it just, it's just like, I mean, guys, I don't want to be judgmental, but America, like, <laughs> please join us. Like, it's, <laughs> it is time to go metric. Stop making your students learn two systems. Stop eyeballing recipes in cups. It's such a pain in the ass. And stop judging your temperature by the standards of how cold water got in a lab in Germany in the 1600s. <laughs> Grams, 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 grams. Celsius, Celsius. (laughs) Meters, meters. (laughs) All right, let's get into the story. We have Dr. Ryan Stone and Lieutenant Commander Kowalski, some randomer and the disembodied voice of Ed Harris having the lulls in space. What they are doing is conducting an EVA, an extravehicular activity, to make some upgrades to the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, Hubble was launched in 1990, 31 years ago. It's so fucking impressive that it's just still there, swinging around up there. Uh, Between 1993 and 2009, there were five service missions to the observatory. So heading up to the Hubble to replace an imaging module is very much in the realms of reality. Now, to actually get from the Space Shuttle Explorer to the telescope itself requires the astronauts to go outside into space. Mm. All right, let's talk spacewalk. Yep. I'm ready. Spacewalk. I, I don't know if it I don't know if it made the cut, but I I talked about the first spacewalk uh, when we did Big Hero Six. Yeah, yeah, absolutely made the cut. Baymax getting stuck in the window reminded Alexa, me of Alexa Leonov yeah. getting stuck in the door. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> now, a spacewalk is, as I said, an extravehicular activity, an EVA, and the suits are extravehicular mobility units (EMUs). When in their EMU. And out on their EVA, an astronaut would also be wearing an SAFER. That was just for you and your love of acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, SAFER is the Simplified Aid for EVA Rescue. And it is a small jet pack that would be used in an emergency situation, like if an astronaut lost contact with the vessel. And astronauts wear these, but they have never been needed. It has like they've never needed to use one because they've never had that kind of an emergency. This now this doesn't appear to be the system that Kowalski was using, which we'll talk about that in a minute. But why wasn't Sandy B wearing one of these? A jet- like fine for the story, but like she should have had one of these packs on her. But she wasn't untethered. Oh, but she should have had an emergency. No, pack, yeah, they yeah. all have them. Yeah, anyone on a sp- any any spacewalk suit has mm. a safer attached to it. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. Like they're all, and they're all pretty much. I don't know that they even do untethered EVAs anymore. Um, that's interesting. So, what Kowalski appears to have been wearing was more like a manned maneuvering unit, and this was a system that was developed by Lockheed Martin, and used on only three missions way back in 1984 uh, for untethered EVAs. So I think the idea was that if you move further, you could move further away from the shuttle and potentially be more flexible if you weren't tethered. And they did actually use these MMUs uh, to kind of like, I think they retrieved a dead satellite at one point, like someone was able to go out a bit further and grab a satellite and pull it in. But NASA ultimately decided that the use was too high risk 
and they could just as easily use robotic arms. So it was replaced with the safer unit for emergencies only. So in saying that, the idea that Kowalski is just, as you said, zipping around, wasting his fuel. Yeah. Get back on the fucking ship, Clooney. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, they don't, they're too chatty. They're too carefree. Like the the other guy jumping around like he's on a bungee cord. A random guy whose face we never see until it's Yeah, random through. person of color who doesn't, in the background, who doesn't yeah. even get a face until it has a hole in it. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, there is actually some random movie trivia about this, which I like, which is um, Kowalski has a line where he says, I'm going to beat Anatoly's record which is actually in reference to Anatoly Soloviev. Oh, I practice saying that name. Anatoly Soloviev, who was the cosmonaut who holds the record for the most EVAs at 16 spacewalks for a total of 82.22 hours of time. Wow. But he doesn't get to do this because Mm. disaster strikes. Now, should we talk about the disaster? Disaster. Yeah, yeah, the thing that starts the movie off so quickly. The thing. The thing. No, <laughs> no. Oh, I really love that music. The bass. It's just so good. She's really given us some uh, soundtrack to this episode, isn't she? That's what I do on your episodes. I just sit back yeah, here and make sound effects. Everyone knows that. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate it. <laughs> okay. We have talked before about what it takes to launch a satellite into orbit. Geostorm, ding ding. We've talked about the importance of trajectories, ding ding sunshine, and methods of altering courses, ding 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 the Martian. In a lot of our space movie chats so far, we have mentioned a few times about space debris, all the junk that's flying around above our skies. And the only way to clear that junk is to A, send a satellite into a higher orbit at the end of its days, up into the space graveyard, or B, to decrease its orbit so that it re-enters the atmosphere and burns up or lands in a safe, predetermined location. So, how likely is it that an event could occur that would cause such massive destruction? Frida. Un- unlikely. <laughs> Ten points. Yeah, uh, so they shot it down. 10 points to Ravenclaw. I didn't really get the chain reaction or like the way they even described it, uh, that they shot it down and then it made a chain reaction of debris. Uh, I was like, I couldn't quite picture that. So can you help me? It's it, yeah, it is a bit tricky. And I don't know that I, that I have a very solid answer for all of this, to be honest, the, in terms of the, the event itself, um, it's actually not that far-fetched. A cascade event of damaged satellites is totally plausible, and it's actually called the Kessler effect, which was proposed by Donald Kessler, a NASA scientist, back in 1978. And it stated that it is a theoretical scenario in which the density of objects in low Earth orbit due to space pollution is high enough that collisions between objects could cause a cascade in which each collision generates space debris that then increases the likelihood of further collisions. And collisions in orbit have actually occurred with satellites colliding with each other or being destroyed by the debris of old satellites. And there have been times where like the ISS has had to change its orbit in order to keep it out of the path of space debris. So 
a cascade event is entirely possible. Like oh. this could happen. Okay. However, there are people on the ground whose job it is to track individual pieces of debris as small as your hand. So an entire field of debris coming on top of astronauts out of nowhere is something that just wouldn't happen. But it seemed like it happened very quickly, though. Yeah, that's like that's just not that's not a thing. Okay, they would see this coming far in advance. Yes, and and they would have time to get out of there if there was going to be such a field of debris. And plus, things like that, I don't think it really happens that quickly as well. Because there was one, I think it was a Chinese satellite was. shot down and there was a piece of like intentionally and there was a piece of debris that six years later destroyed a Russian satellite oh my gosh yeah and also like this whole thing assumes that everybody's in the same distance from the earth like everyone's in the same orbit they're all just smashing Mm. into each other but I imagine in reality it'd be passing by in such massive distances from each other most likely well yeah, so this is the thing. So, it, like, this is what happens in the movie. They create that field, they cause the, and the field comes in and destroys everything. But we have to talk a little bit about some of the orbital dynamics here because there's a lot of debris that hits them and causes all of this destruction. But in order for them to collide with the telescope and the Explorer shuttle, that means that this debris has to be on an intercept path. So you're saying so that at the fact that something was going in their exact same orbit, first of all, wouldn't be in their orbit. But if it did get shot down, it would just be in orbit. It would just be in orbit. In its yeah, same it would be orbit. In orbit. And it would be at the same velocity and it would still be on its path. And it, but still in its same position, like the relative velocities between the objects in the same orbit is is like minimal. So it wouldn't catch up to it. Mm. But... Objects at lower orbits have higher velocities and higher orbits have lower velocities. And you can apply energy to increase or decrease your orbit. You do this using thrusters and like fuel supplies with the satellites that we have in space. So I don't really know how an inert object would achieve this. But what is possible is for a cascade event to happen at a higher orbit, causing the debris to begin a like deorbit descent like have a decreasing orbital path, move down into lower orbit and hit the Hubble. Yeah, because that's that's what I was going to ask. Like, can that event cause it to go into a lower orbit somehow? If it wasn't in that orbit. Well, we're going to come we're, we're going to come back to this a little bit more in a while, mm-hmm. because what happens here is we've said that the debris has come down and it's destroyed the Hubble. It's destroyed the shuttle. Once this first debris field has passed, Everything is gone. Kowalski and Stone are adrift. And there's a line where Kowalski calls out to the ISS. If you hear us, we could sure use a rescue mission. There's there's a line in one of the things that I watched, which I think it was Chris Hadfield reviewing um, Gravity. And he basically was like, why are you calling out to Houston? How can they help you? Or like, why are you calling out to the ISS? Like, no one can help you. Yeah. Well, they could get in contact with other stations, right? And be like, oh, go there or don't go there or like that. Yeah, I suppose. But then they they don't seem to have any communication anymore. Everything seems to be gone. It seems to be gone into the, like this blackout. Yeah. yeah, so they just start speaking to no one. And I think they say in the movie, yeah. they're kind of like, are they doing it just for themselves to have someone to talk to? 
or just out of mm. habit. Maybe. Because otherwise you're silent. That's what I was thinking. But they're saying a lot. I actually made me think because they were saying, Houston in the blind, Houston in the blind. And I, and I just thought, is this a Hollywood phrase or is it real? So I actually looked it up. Mm. Can I tell you what I found out? Yes, please do. What's a, a blind transmission is a transmission that you transmit without acknowledgement or knowledge that it's been received. Oh. So I guess if she's in the light box by herself, isolated, yelling out, not knowing if anyone's fucking hearing her, that's when she'd say in the blind, in the blind. I'm because I'm blind. I don't know if anyone's right. I don't know if anyone's receiving this or not. So it's not they don't know whether Houston is receiving it or not. Um, right. And so they do in aviation, an aircraft will, will will transmit in the blind if they're approaching an airport which doesn't have a tower. So they're not communicating knowingly with a tower. They're just communicating on common frequencies. Hi, I'm coming, everyone. Oh, my God. Everyone, I'm here. I don't know if anyone hears this, but, like, I'm landing right now. So that is, like, that's um, just a way of saying, I don't know who's hearing me because I haven't got an acknowledgement. And um, I did watch... Um, actually, on your Ed, Ed Harris point, I, I did find myself watching the entire um, recording of the NASA mission control room during Columbia's uh, failed re-entry. And um, they used the term in the blind because it, there was a point where oh. they were trying to communicate again with Columbia uh, like at oh. regular intervals and they were saying in the blind, in the blind, they were just because they had no knowledge whether or not it was being received and no evidence that it was being received. So. It's a real term. Oh, I know. It's so heartbreaking. And actually, when when you bring up the Columbia disaster, that's actually really interesting because when I was thinking about like this concept of rescue missions, um, when the Columbia disaster happened, they cancelled the like the NASA administrator grounded the last service mission to Hubble. And because of it, uh, he felt that like there wasn't enough fuel in the shuttle that would allow it to reach the ISS if there was any trouble. Uh And he was like, it's just too risky. Um, But eventually in 2009, they did actually send the mission up to do the final service mission on um, on Hubble. But they had a space shuttle on standby at Cape Canaveral in order to mount a rescue mission if it was needed. I thought that was fascinating. But they did plan that. I have to sneeze. Sorry. I'm just like. Um, <laughs> Beautiful timing. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, I'm str- uh, it's a bit of a struggle sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, this is, it's truly fascinating stuff. It really is. That's scary. It's scary. Yeah. It is because you're very much alone and that's the point. It's, and that's what the, the movie really does help us to really see. It's like you, you are alone. There's, like nothing can actually be done for you at that moment in time. And that's why the astronauts are trained to deal with these types of situations yeah. so that they don't panic and that they they do whatever it is that they can or are trained to do. I think this nails like my big space therapy issue. The thing that I find so terrifying mm. is the idea of like, how can you be helped out there? How can anyone reach yeah. you? The, like that is so scary. Yeah. So horrifying. Yes. And in saying all of that, if the real life shuttle didn't have enough fuel to get from Hubble to the ISS in case of an emergency, then you could be pretty damn sure the Kowalski's jetpack didn't either. So 
This isn't a case of the ISS just like hanging out and they need to walk on over to it, as we've talked about. Like the ISS and the astronauts are now orbiting at about the same velocity around the Earth. And the only way to realistically reach the ISS is to move to a higher orbit so you can slow, so you slow down and wait for the station to pass by, or you reduce your orbit so you can move faster and catch up to it. And it's not really clear to me how they're using the jetpack in the movie. So let's, for argument's sake, assume that it has magic fuel that allows this to happen and they reach the ISS. But they now have to match the velocity of the station again to catch it. And they do a piss poor job of that and sacrifice Kowalski for the advancement of <laughs> the plot. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> it is truly for the advancement of the plot. I think that this is like pretty famous, the fact that there shouldn't have been any tension in that fucking rope. Obviously. I mean, right. in that scene, he is got the safety buckle that he's uh, holding on to between her and him and she's got something wrapped around her foot but for some reason he is pulling away from her and the question is right what is he pulling towards what is pulling him in why is he why is there tension in the rope this isn't like vertical limit the scene where they're hanging towards the earth gravity gravity pulling and the rope has tension there is no reason why that rope would have been yanking her and yanking the thing off her foot you know she should have been able to easily actually pull him in but more to the point if he did unclip himself he would just float there why is he being flung away there's no physical reason for him to be flung away but the scene makes no sense from, from a physics point of view because he is pulling her what how so well that's what am i wrong i don't think so yeah i don't think i don't think you're wrong and and i think like uh, because i came like in looking at stuff like i came across this a lot but what i will say is i came across one random thing and i wasn't looking for it at all because i was like i'm not i'm not this isn't something i'm looking into but i came across a super random um article that was about that was ask ask ethan or something ethan and some guy yeah ask ethan and some guy basically was like um basically asked a question about this and he actually gave a response that i thought was really interesting because he is actually looking at the scene that there is an angle like his interpretation is that stone is at an angle to the space station and Kowalski is at an angle to stone. And the only, but he's saying like the only way that something like this could happen in space would be if the spacecraft was rotating. Even just a little bit would be enough to, um, to kind of disturb uh-huh. the system. And in doing that, it would keep the tether taut and provide a risk, he says, provide a risk of a more massive weight at the end of breaking the tether. And then because of that, if the weight is detached, it would move off because of its own inertia. But that would only happen if there was some form of acceleration to cause it to happen. And that would, and that could potentially come from, um, 
the rotational motion of the space station, which we could maybe say that the space station could be rotating because it's been hit right. by all this debris. So it might actually okay. Now okay. So I don't know. I wasn't like I wasn't looking for this, but I just randomly came across it and I just noted it down because I didn't know what you okay. were going to say. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. I didn't take into account that it might be moving in a direction that was away from their arrangement, their angle. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know because I didn't go back and look at the scene to see what was actually happening in it. But I just I just thought it was interesting that somebody kind of had that response um, that it was kind of like, oh, there could potentially. I think be he's being a... a little bit as what what I would call a feinschmeck because I think that <laughs> the scene doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of physics, because you what you see in front of your eyes, you're like. I don't know if this makes any sense, whether or not he finds some like way to justify it. Like, believe you me, like they didn't have that logic when they did it. They didn't think yeah. of that. You want to find a way that either it's apparent that it makes sense or it's apparent that it doesn't make sense. Like, again, I don't think you need to be, you should be searching so much in a movie for like in a, in a logic like that. Yeah. I think most likely they just were like, this gives the dramatic effect that we're hoping for. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And so, yeah, we need we need Kowalski to. We go. just acknowledge the fact that they <laughs> disregarded <laughs> conveniently some physics. But this guy's like, oh no, I can figure out a way. Technically, maybe if you think this and if you think that, I'm like, yeah, but they didn't do that. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Let's check in. Let's check in. Check in with Grace. Yeah. Tell us. Maybe they, were, maybe, maybe they were like, can we do this um, because we need him to go away? And he was like, uh, you know what? I guess I can find a way to make it work. And they're like, sweet. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, they did make it work and they made Kowalski go bye-bye. So Dr. Stone is now all alone. And into the ISS she goes. And out of her super speedy spacesuit and adult diaper and into her sexy and space underwear. <laughs> But this can't last long because the clock is ticking and the space debris is on its second intercept path. So I don't want to be like, you know, this is all completely inaccurate, but it's just, it's a thing. And they've just made it a thing. And they've made it a thing that in 90 minutes, the debris is going to hit again. And which, fine. Which fine. gives a pretty good, uh, <laughs> like it adds that level of urgency and like a ticking clock element to the story, yeah. which is like, Oh, great we don't need you know sometimes with a story like we don't need you to explain it and if you try to explain it it makes it more complicated and it becomes this whole thing so i kind of like i'm fine with them not really explaining it because if they did they would have to go into so much detail that it would just take away from what was happening in the action it's just it's not necessary yeah, as we mentioned before one of the big strengths of the movie is that it's very simple. They really strip a lot of things back to allow everybody to yeah. enjoy the storyline and to appreciate the urgency and appreciate like, oh, I know what needs to happen next in order for her to be okay. Will she be yeah. okay? It's simple. And, and that would fail if they had put too many elements in it. And speaking of what happens next, <laughs> there are two Soyuz modules at the ISS. One has already been used by the station's crew to evacuate. And unfortunately, the remaining capsule has accidentally had its parachute deployed. Now, we'll talk about the importance of this later, but just know no parachute equals dead on re-entry. 
what's a girl to do? Luckily, Kowalski isn't like totally dead yet. And so he advises that she takes the Soyuz and uses its thrusting capabilities, I guess, to get to the Tiangong, the Chinese space station, and see if she can use one of their capsules to return to Earth. So into the Soyuz she goes, but that pesky parachute is stuck and so she can't break away from the ISS and the space debris is a coming seven minutes to go. So it's into speedy spacesuit round two. Cosmonaut <laughs> style. Russian, enter Russian spacesuit. Yeah. I don't really understand like this whole scene in terms of like what's the difference between the Soyuz spacesuit and the whole EMU get up. Um, the spacesuit she dons is called the Sokol suit, S-O-K-O-L suit. And the major difference between this and the first suit is that this is actually designed as a rescue suit in order to keep the wearer alive in the event of an accidental depressurization event in the aircraft. Um, right. So it, and when, when it's pressurized, it, it balloons actually restricts movement. Um, the, the, uh, the major, the other, um, uh, I was going to say, so, uh, because of this, it, it only actually can be attached to an external life support unit. So it doesn't have right. a life support unit inside it. Um, so in the scene where she clears the parachute lines, you can actually see that she's plugged into a life support unit through an umbilical cord, uh, through an umbilical really? cord, as it were. Yes, you can kind of see it. But again, that's sort of nitpicky. But it, it's yeah. obviously much less bulky. And as I said, that's probably intentional because where they were going with the with the narrative uh, or the symbolism. But the reason it's less bulky because it's designed only to be worn in the Soyuz. And this happened because uh, some cosmonauts had asphyxiated in this, uh, because of pressurization or whatever it was. So they wow. designed suits to be worn at all times in the Soyuz. So it has to be figure hugging because it's very very small there it does not have a life support unit it's a rescue suit it is not adequate for eva yeah so maybe you know she she seems to be touched uh, attached by the umbilical when she's doing the parachute lines however later on when she's going to the chinese one she's travels three four minutes and then it's another three minutes or so before the vacuum there's no way she could hold her breath for that long she has no life support unit whatsoever absolutely impossible she would have died bad research what can i say so unfortunately everybody sandy b is dead (laughs) (laughs) but no she's in the soyuz and she's trying to find her way to tiangong um the soyuz is actually the name for the longest operational human spacecraft program in the history of space exploration. I just thought that was a cute little fact. Oh, yeah. It also it also means union in Russian. Ah. I thought that was nice. But uh, let's talk about the Soyuz for a minute. So in terms of a spaceship, it's made up of three modules. It's got a service module that transports equipment for the journey. It's got an orbital module that docks with the ISS. And then it's got a descent module that carries the astronauts. And this is the only section that will re-enter the atmosphere. So it's the descent module portion that she's gotten into. Now, for some reason that I don't understand, the Soyuz is low on oxygen and the temperatures are dropping. But the descent module has a navigation and control system along with eight hydrogen peroxide thrusters. 
So as soon as she remembers her training, she's able to direct the Soyuz towards Tiangong and try to catch the space station as it's falling. Now, she can't land the Soyuz on the Chinese space station, so she uses rapid decompression to eject herself. And then, because she's super lucky and she has that handy fire extinguisher, she's somehow able to get to Tiangong. Do you know what I just realized? I just want to point out that the whole time I was doing that, Frida's mic was muted and I was watching her on camera do about eight sneezes. <laughs> um, do you know what's funny? Because this is a Wally um, yeah. callback, obviously. And, but I just want to say like, Eva, Eva. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm here all week. Do your Wally voice. Eva. Can you remember Wally. your Wally voice? I can't. It's impossible. It's such a good voice. <laughs> Wally. And Wally actually. No, it's very good. Wally did this more scientifically accurate than the gravity oh, did. Oh, interesting. Um, the idea is right. Like the like in terms of the physics to use, you yeah. know, that. But it, it'd be not only so difficult to precisely fire in the opposite direction that you want you to go in. But it would also be very difficult to line up your center of gravity when you when you press it. So what would most right. likely happen, and this does happen in Wally, is that you would be spinning every time you move. So unless you went exactly oh, yes. in the opposite direction you wanted to go, exactly at your center of gravity, you would be going all over the place. Right. Little factoid, um, Ed White, who was the first American to spacewalk, had a handheld mm-hmm. little gun like that with compressed air. Oh, 20 minute spacewalk he ran out of air within three minutes oh wow and he had to pull himself in by his tether which was exhausting apparently it is really hard and really exhausting to pull yourself in by a tether it's hard work so i think it would have run out very very quickly it would have been all over the place cool idea stole it from wally It's like all I could think was Wally. Like it just saw it immediately. I was like, Wally. I know. How dare they? How dare they be like, I'm stealing this idea from the most delightful cartoon about robots in love. (laughs) Nope. We won't let you get it. Well, they might have taken the idea, but she certainly wasn't dancing. Um, She was. She was was doing her. ah, ah, That's it. Ah. Barreling towards the space station. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Well, in the movie, the space station um, Tiangong is much larger than what the real one is. In actual fact, Tiangong one uh, is just one small module. But what's depicted in the movie is actually very close to the plans that they have for their next space station, which should be completed in the next couple of years. Actually, I think it was due to be uh, put in orbit in 2022. Once she reads Tiangong, it has this Shenzhou module attached. And this is what she uses for re-entry and to land on Earth. Now, there's not a huge amount of accessible information regarding Shenzhou, which I think is like kind of normal when it comes to like Chinese space exploration. It's quite difficult to get some of the details. But the Shenzhou module is designed using the Soyuz technology. 
And for all like intents and purposes, it directly resembles the Soyuz. Oh. I think the actual Shenzhou is just slightly larger. So this is why she's able to figure out how to detach because while everything is in Chinese, it's still basically the same layout as the Soyuz that she did training on. Even bad training, but she still did it. Oh. Ah. I mean, do they share plans? Do you think with each other, or is this like a stealing? I think type they did. Thing? No, I no, I no, I think they. I think that the Russian um, space agency, I think Russian Cosmos, helped Chinese um, China design and develop the Shenzhou. Oh, cool. Is my understanding. Good so while I can't really give a huge amount of detail about how the Shenzhou works, I can tell you how the Soyuz does. So. <laughs> And given they're essentially the same thing, let's just do that. Now, at about 400,000 feet above the Earth is the entry interface region. And this is the point when we start entering the atmosphere. And that's when the friction starts to heat the surfaces. Now, it takes three hours to get to this point, like from the ISS to do your orbit around to get to the angle of entry where you're about to enter the atmosphere. And then it only takes 23 minutes to get to the ground. So from now on, it's all about a controlled atmospheric entry, which uses technology and procedures that govern the entry, descent and landing of the spacecraft. So the EDL. And this is where what you're saying, like the design shape is imperative because ideally you want a spherical object for efficiency, but it's not practical. there needs to be some lift to avoid a ballistic re-entry because a ballistic re-entry is just too hard on the astronauts and it has no steering control. So maybe potentially that's what happened. Maybe on her re-entry, she doesn't do the smooth, um, normal re-entry that has the lift. Maybe she's ended up on a trajectory that sends her down on a ballistic re-entry, which would just be a lot harder. And then that that would make a lot more sense. And then maybe that's why you get some firing of electrics because it's it's still, you can still do the ballistic re-entry, but it's just not, um, it's, it's not smooth. Yeah. Basically. So that does make a bit more sense. Yeah, it does but make a lot more sense. In ballistic. order to avoid a ballistic re-entry, the Soyuz has this headlight shape, right? So the, the like lines at the front and curves at the back. So um, the reason it has this is it causes an uneven distribution of weight, which allows there to be some lift. And that's how it's able to control its path on the trajectory during this like whole kind of free fall section and stay on this planned trajectory. So that whole base plate, the plate that's kind of the forward facing section, that's Mm -hmm. the part that's got the heat shield. Oh, okay. Yeah, so the forward facing thing has this whole heat shield which is what protects it as it comes in. But then it goes into this sort of like slightly spherical shape at the back to create this uneven distribution and allow this lift to keep it on its path. If it didn't have this lift, it would go ballistic and it would just go straight down. But the heat shield would still be on this base plate, which is the whole part that's hitting the atmosphere the whole way through. That's amazing. So it's the uh, so coming into the picture is like the design, the shape, the aerodynamics around the objects that sort yeah. of protect parts of it, and then uh, protect parts of it with the shielding, and then the other parts of it with the shape of the object itself. That makes much. That makes sense. It's really cool. And then, like, just just to talk a bit about this actual landing procedure because it's amazing. 
like when the capsule re-enters the atmosphere and begins this deceleration process, like the the friction from the atmosphere begins to slow down the capsule. So like this is the first stage of the slowing down. And the free fall deceleration lasts for about eight minutes, after which the capsule is still traveling at about 800 kilometers per hour. Oh my God. Now, the next stage after these eight minutes, you go into the descent phase. And this is 15 minutes before landing. Sorry, just one second, the ice cream van's outside. Can you hear it? Oh my God. I want my fucking ice cream. I'm so sorry. That's so random that the ice cream van came. Frida was supposed to get ice cream and it was not brought to her. Okay. Bring me my ice cream. <laughs> okay, let's go into the descent. So 15 minutes before landing, there are three braking parachutes that are deployed and these will further reduce the speed. But the main... Sorry, wait. He's still going. It's like right outside the house. <laughs> um, so the... The, the main guy, so the first two, there's just two parachutes that go out first, right? To kind of start the process. But the main guy is the drogue chute. And this is like just a 24 meter squared parachute that does like a rapid slowdown. And it can slow the capsule from 800 kilometers to 290 kilometers, which is still really fast. Yeah. But once this is done, the final main parachute is deployed. And this guy is about 1,000 meters squared. And the way that this parachute is rigged changes the angle of the capsule. So it makes it go at a 30 degree angle relative to the ground. And this is how it starts to dissipate all the heat that it's collected during the descent. Mm. And just before landing, the harness on this main chute then shifts it again so that it's vertical and it's coming straight down ready to land. Oh my God. Um, and at this point, this like massive monster of a parachute has managed to slow the capsule down to about 28 kilometers per hour, which is still too fast for landing. But the last thing it must do is the capsule then jettisons the heat shield and any oxygen reserves or anything like that, that it has that might have the potential to cause an explosion on landing. But once it gets rid of this heat shield below it, there are a couple of little small landing engines on the base of the capsule. And then these are fired to further slow the descent down again to bring the capsule right down in for a nice, soft, cushioned landing. Mm. Every astronaut will disagree that it's cushioned. They all said, like, you watch any video with them, they're like, it's still horrible when you land. But that is the entire process. So... Uh, and they and they are able to land in water and they but they would normally have like a buoyancy thing that would deploy that would cause them to have some buoyancy like to have them float a little bit more on the water so that there'd be time to get out but the thing that happened with the water rushing in did actually happen to an astronaut once all the water rushing in when they were trying to get out uh, what did you call it again the the thing that the thing that deploys when it's right from about to land to, to further slow it down what's that called again uh, the landing engines landing engines um 
it, it was very cool that he made reference to the landing engines and we saw the landing engine um, earlier on with the damaged Soyuz. Or yeah. The, uh, yeah. And then, you know, just like it would have been cool if we just saw the landing engines without having understood it. It just happened to be extra neat that Kowalski had a, there was a whole plot around mm. the landing engines previously. So then we saw the landing engines in the Shenzhou. It was like, there it's landing yeah. the way it's supposed to. <laughs> <laughs> it was very nice. And I and, and just with the water filling, like I that scene was so awesome just because of how quickly it all happened. Yeah. How they were like, We're gonna send you a rescue, but she was like, I need to be out of here. Boom, bang, it all yeah. happened so fast. It was just like this desperate struggle to get the F out of there. Yeah. Uh was was pretty fantastic. Wow. Thank you so much for explaining that. I mean, it's kind of crazy. It's all these little things causing right? like the design. Well, I guess I'm saying yeah, how well designed these things are. This exactly. And it, and there is connection in the design as well. So like, you know, there's there's things that you can kind of take for granted, I guess, a little bit. But Frida, we started our journey on Earth back with Annihilation. We launched our very first satellite with Geostorm, miscalculated our trajectory in sunshine, and performed a gravitational assist in the Martian. And now, at the end of our very first year, gravity itself has pulled us back down to Earth. Happy anniversary, my friend. Very nice. Happy anniversary, friend. (laughs) Very, very beautiful. Well said. (laughs) That is gravity. We are done. Well done. It was really interesting. And I actually uh, uh, really like my little bits of research. I learned really interesting things yeah. that I've been going around and telling people like, what I learned yesterday. <laughs> I thought, yeah, it's Do been you know, fascinating. This is the thing. It's actually interesting because I, I was speaking this morning and I was saying to, I was talking about how frustrated I was with all these articles, just rehashing the same science and just kind of saying, oh, well, it can't be this and it can't be that and uh, this is everything it got wrong. And it's just one article writes it and then you have 12 that have just duplicated the same information. And what I love about this podcast is that the intention is not about destroying the science of a movie. It's about understanding what we can learn about science and the world through movies and art. It's about being able to watch something and see this stuff depicted and then whether it's done correctly or incorrectly like it we still all just get to learn so much about actual science and get excited about real science because of mm. when people put them in these movies and i really love it yeah the movies become the they give us the topics that we then go on to research um but the science and the movies is like we we just love each of them separately so much and so we go like what amazing science is this movie going to give us so that we can go off to research but i I like that we 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 love each of them in their own right completely and totally it's both movies podcast and a science podcast yes (laughs) and that is just that's just great (laughs) just great and we've it's now great. finished our first exploration, our year, first year's exploration in space. So we'll see how Frida feels next year. <laughs> Will she love it? Will she hate it? Join us. <laughs> space. Um, space. What is it? Well, the last thing we have to do 
Well, not the last thing we have to do, but one of the last things we have to do is obviously with every great movie that doesn't excuse some things and we can still have a moment. A moment that makes us just go, what the fuck? What the What the What the fuck? Frida, do you have a what the fuck moment? You look traumatized. So I didn't have one. And so I said to myself, I'm going to just sit here and maybe it will come to me. Well, maybe. I've, I, I know there are things that I could complain about, but I've, I've, I, I don't, I don't want to f- be petty. And the movie was so clean and devoid of anything much extra and I know there was that one bit with the radio phone call, but I don't find that what the fuck. I found that appropriately surreal. And I know that George Clooney had annoying lines, but he's George Clooney. And <laughs> I like that there was random things flying around the ISS. I really struggled and I decided, and it's one year anniversary. So like in honor of that, can I just leave it? Okay, sure. I didn't have one. Okay, do you know what? Let's let's leave it then. Thank this you. This was a damn good movie. What did what did you pick? I'm curious. <laughs> See, this is now now I don't know whether I should just cut it as well, and we should just say like just for one year was anniversary, it the guy? we won't have it? a what the fuck. Adi no, whatever his name is. Okay, go no. go go go. <laughs> okay, no, I I have two. But they're not a big deal at all. Like one is just one isn't even it's not about a what the fuck in like what how is that in the movie? It was just a moment in the movie that made me go, what the fuck are you doing? Uh, And it's when before you realize that Kowalski is dead, even though you should realize immediately that he is definitely dead. But when he knocks on the door to the Soyuz and then he just opens the door and you're like, she doesn't have her helmet on. What the fuck are you doing? Oh, yeah, this is a dream. You're dead. Yeah. Okay, fine. (laughs) Um, and then I do have one little mini what the fuck and it's just it's just a little thing of like um, if Tiangong is in the same orbit as the Hubble and ISS what is it made of that it survived the two debris trips and it's still alive like what yes if <laughs> yes why why um, wasn't that why was the ISS intact and and, and only was destroyed after they arrived there if they're on the same orbit and then, <laughs> why was the Chinese space station which I, I don't know how to pronounce I don't know if you're going to try it oh uh, yeah I'm not I Ch- keep just saying Tiangong 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 okay. why yes yeah. I, this is a great question why indeed yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> why were all the doors unlocked that's my what the fuck there you go oh yeah who left them <laughs> unlocked <laughs> Who leaves such expensive places unlocked for fuck's sake? Lock your doors, people. What the fuck? Airlock drama. Airlock drama. Lock Karina. the drawers. Come on. Hashtag airlock drama. Lock your lock your doors. <laughs> All right, let's do final verdicts. Um, first one, did it pass the Sam's test? Um, yes, it doesn't really count, but yes. There was only two characters. Yeah, yes. fine. We'll give it. Um, did it pass? Here comes the science bit. Well, what was the Here Comes Science bit in your mind? Because it was all just big epic tale of returning home, I guess. 
Mm. Um, yeah. The orbital dynamics and all that kind there of thing. There wasn't, yeah, there wasn't a whole, yeah, there wasn't a whole kind of, I mean, we didn't have that moment of like, we're now going to explain the science to you. So it did pass it because they didn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't, they, they, did, they weren't very explainy, which we, we both agree is good. Yeah. Uh, final verdict then, I guess. Yeah. How many, how many, I don't know, how many spaceships, how many Hubbles? What do we, what do we say? How many Hubbles, ISSs? How many Soyuz capsules? Um, it's, it's one of those tricky ones where we, we've, we have actually identified a couple of things which, which we, uh, which, you know, look, they're flawed. But again, petty. Um, I'm going to say 4.8. Hey. Very nice. The I fly. Like I gave five stars to the fly. <laughs> I know. How fucking dare you? Seriously. <laughs> Sorry. What was your score? About 4.5. <laughs> okay. Can't believe you gave five fucking stars to the fly. <laughs> Look, um, this movie is, as you said, this movie is an experience. And I just want to read a little bit which was a bit from a, um, just a couple of sentences from remarks from an astronaut that watched the movie. And he said, I'm so pleased you've made this film because while my time up in space was not as harrowing as Ryan's, it most certainly, the visual and the feel and the sound of being in space is so perfectly illustrated. And I can now take my family to the film and they can see what it was like for me up there. And that's pretty cool. That's... Yeah, that's beautiful. I I did see a couple of interviews where they said like, sure, their vibe was like, sure, like we can nitpick at things that were wrong, but the vibe of the thing, as we say in Australia, Mm. (laughs) (laughs) was true. Yeah. Um, And that's great for all of us that haven't been to space. Yes. And we'll never be. (laughs) whether by choice or circumstance Um, okay well that is it for this cycle and we are now taking a break Um, we have a little bit of a what we have three weeks off before our next episode so sneezy you have no idea how hard this was (laughs) yes Um, we have yeah we have three weeks off but I think we have a extended moon episode coming out with a bit of a um Special, uh, special interview, uh, re-moon. Yarp? Yep. In about two weeks' time. And then we will be back two weeks after that with our brand new cycle. Yep. Dun-dun. Do we know what our first episode's going to be, Frida? Yep. Yep. It's District 9. <gasps> we haven't done Aliens in a while, I don't think. I know. It's been a I while. I hate you for this. Why? Oh, that movie made me cry so much. Cry? Great. Yeah, I know. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) You really did cry, but I was so uncomfortable watching that movie. (gasps) I hope there's a sequel soon and we can follow it up. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'd like to do some sequels. Um, Cool. Okay, well, cool. District 9 is the first episode of our new cycle. Uh, as we said in a I, can't, I don't know what the date is guys just yeah give us weeks. a break 
Um, if you'd like to join us, please do um, give us a rating if you have time and subscribe to the podcast on whatever your chosen player is. Thank you for listening. Um, you can contact us on scienceofthemoviesgmail.com. You can send us your comments, your thoughts, your movie requests, whatever you feel like. Uh, no trolls, please. Or catch us on Instagram at scienceofthemovies and on Twitter, movies underscore science. I don't really use Twitter that much. I'm sorry. <sighs> We're not great at it. I like, yeah. Well, Instagram, we, we, we definitely vibe with. Vibe with us, they say in Australia. Alrighty, okay. <laughs> okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> By the way, my pants. Do you ever just sit with your pants on time? Yeah, in the car all like the time. Like the top buttons? Yeah, yeah, my, my top buttons were just undone. <laughs> I was just like lounging around with my buttons undone.